Good evening, friends. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast focusing on the best in horror movies, games, stories, and other eerie artifacts. I'm your host, Daniel Link, and I invite you to make yourself a pot of tea, turn down the lights, and tune in. I'm very excited to talk about the movie for this week's episode. It's one that came out in 2015. It was the directorial debut of Robert Eggers, American director, though it is an American-Canadian production. It's a very harrowing, uneasy film, very nihilistic, which usually isn't my thing, but it's so well done here and leaves me such the feeling of palpable dread that I want from a horror movie that I can't help but love it. I just rewatched it and I was overjoyed for how well it is held up in my mind. So let's talk about The Witch. Uh, its full title is The Witch, a New England folktale. And it's actually stylized as like a really old style of W that looks like two V's next to each other. When this movie was about to come out, a co- old co-worker of mine, when I was working at Party City, he and I would call it The Vich. Yeah, that was a blast from the past. Anyways, let's get to talking about this movie. Uh, so it was filmed near the Ontario towns of Mattawa and Kiosk, which are located on the northern edge of Algonquin Park. They're very remote. Ontario, big province, the vast majority of the population uh, is in like the southern and central portion. So much of up north is uh, forest, uh, rocky Canadian shield, giving way to some sub-tundra. It's a very vast and awe-inspiring amount of wilderness. And you can see why it made for a great location for this movie, because uh, Robert Eggers is going for the idea of nature as this oppressive, malevolent thing. I'm reminded of how Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky would depict nature in like his sci-fi adaptation of Solaris uh, in Stalker, which was recently released by the Criterion Collection, thank God. In Tarkovsky's case, though, his nature was ambivalent. It didn't really take a side for or against humanity. It was this thing that was. It was this thing that humanity dealt with, tried to comprehend, live with. In The Witch, however, it's definitely a lot more overpowering against these woods at their doorstep because, witch or not, it's just harrowing out there. It is a hostile environment that humans are very slowly and, as we know today, surely encroaching into. But this section of forest, it doesn't want these people. So it's set a few years before the actual Salem Witch Trials, presumably in Massachusetts or some other New England colony. Uh... A Puritan family and a Puritan community are exiled because the father, William, played by Ralph Innocent, is actually too pious for everybody else. Like, he thinks that these fundamentalist Puritans aren't putting their work in, and he alienates enough people and refuses to compromise to the point where he accepts exile to the edge of the nearby woods. So he takes his wife, Catherine, uh, their four kids, which include eldest daughter, Thomason, uh, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who is the female lead in M. Night Shyamalan's Split. Eldest son, Caleb, played by Harvey Scrimshaw. Two twins, uh, Mercy and Jonas. And baby Samuel. So they set up a small farm on the edge of the vast woods. And things seem to be going well. You know, they get a house built, and it's very rudimentary, but it's a place second house, all of them. They get a shed built. They get one heck of a woodpile going, not so much with the corn. 
the land is just not taking to their corn very well. It's rotten. It's sour. And things go south when baby Samuel is stolen. Some of them say by a wolf, but we, the audience, know very quickly that it is a witch who's made her home in the nearby forest. This movie's version of a witch straddles the line between the typical image of an old crone and just a sick elderly woman. That bit of reality is upsetting. It's like, I don't know, just imagine wandering around these woods at night and just coming across like this sick, senile old woman, but you're not quite sure what she's capable of. At least two of the scenes uh, featuring the witch in different forms uh, play homage to the famous bathroom lady sequence in Kubrick's The Shining, uh, when the beautiful young woman steps nude out of the bathtub to embrace Jack Nicholson, and it's actually an old, cackling, decaying corpse of a woman. Uh, as with The Duke, which I discussed last week, comparisons have been made to Kubrick's The Shining. Supernatural forces are turning family members against each other. This family is utterly alone, and since they're so occupied with trying to survive, like not just the forest like from before, but now this witch on their doorstep, they have no one to take their issues out with except on each other. The kids have no friends or no formal education, no real social environment to develop in. And it leads to a sexual curiosity between some of the kids that thankfully doesn't go anywhere, like on screen, but you see those unhealthy thoughts forming and how it is a product of this fundamentalist household. The witch is key to the plot, but mostly in the role of a catalyst. Much, most of the conflict in the movie is between the family members themselves. It doesn't mince words about Puritan Christianity, especially the concept of predestination. So, you know, per Calvinism, like Calvinistic theology, the idea is that God and heaven exist outside of the human perception of time and space. God has always been, will always be, and likewise of heaven. Like, time does not pass in that version of heaven as it does on earth. So, technically, like, everything in heaven is known. Like, God knows how the course of the universe is going to plot out. He knows, like, what actions people will take during their lives. So, he knows, like, in retrospect, which people will be good and which people are bad. And so that gets them rejected from heaven, sent down into the pits of hell. So you have this unhealthy mode of thinking, which you're in constant fear of hell. But according to your own theology, you don't really have any choice in the matter. Like the whims of the universe are dictating your actions. And so you're consigned to an eternity in paradise or an eternity in pain and torment for actions that, like per this theology, like, you don't have any sand. And it's something that the characters in that movie fret about on screen and realize, like, oh, my God, that is, like, a hellish way of thinking for a child to grow up in, uh, especially when it deals with subject of death and, like, unbaptized babies. And, you know, in older, in some current forms of uh, Christian theology, like, the unbaptized dead can't be saved. And, you know, what has a baby done wrong to be committed to purgatory, even hell for alternative. Wow, that is the most I've spoken up about certain forms of organized religion in a while. This movie brings that out in you. Moving on to 
how the movie was made, it greatly benefits from being shot digitally. So I'm a fan of both film and digital cinematography. I'm not a snob for either format. I know that both of them have their pros and cons. And as someone who is like a former diehard film person, I really recommend you check out the documentary uh, Side by Side, which was narrated and hosted by Keanu Reeves. And he goes deep into the history of cinematography since the dawn of Hollywood, like all the way back to black and white film cameras uh, through the very early days of digital cinematography back when George Lucas was using it with the Star Wars prequels. Now, regardless of your feelings on the Star Wars prequels, they helped bring digital cinematography into the limelight. And digital cinematography has been a great boon to independent filmmaking in general, but also to like indie horror filmmaking. So in the case of film, one of the cons is that it doesn't pick up as high a dynamic range of light as digital does. Blacks are easily crushed. So if you don't have the proper lighting, you know, either it's going to be too, everything is too bright or everything is too dark. You don't see as much nuance between the different shades of shadow. Film often has to rely on prepared lighting, which gives well-shot film a distinctive look, like that film look. But it's not the most naturalistic most of the time. Due to the sensors used in digital cinematography, uh, stuff shot digitally is able to capture all the little nuances of shadow, how the dying light of day diffuses through the thick canopy of a forest. We see shadows, pitch blackness, as those characters would see them in real life. We can see the difference between daylight and dusk and moonlight and pitch black and dawn. We would see these little nuances as these characters in the movie would see them from their own eyes. So even though the film is, I don't think, ever shot from a first-person perspective, like it feels very immersive. It puts you in those characters' shoes, and consequently, you feel sucked into that experience with them. You feel as afraid and as filled with dread as they do. Catches the half-light of dusk perfectly. Half-light almost being the title of this podcast. I definitely considered that before settling on Outside of a Dream. I also have to recommend the original score by Mark Corvin. He's a Canadian composer. He did the soundtrack for Cube. It's a very raw-sounding use of strings, scratchy, unpolished, almost cuts into your ears. I'm reminded of some of the soundtrack for uh, one of my favorite video games, The Witcher 3, uh, by Polish composer Marcin Pritzbilowicz. I hope I pronounced that right, Marcin. Uh, also uses some really well-arranged choral work that reminded me a lot of Hungarian composer Jorgi Ligeti. You may be familiar with Ligeti's work, even if you don't know the man's name himself. A lot of his choral pieces were used by Kubrick in 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, when the primitive humanity discovered the black monolith, when the black monolith is discovered on the moon, the incredible Stargate sequence at the end. Uh, you're familiar with his work from there. Uh, similar Kubrick kick, a lot of the strings and percussion reminds me of Polish composer uh, Krzysztof Penderecki, whose music was also used in The Shining and most recently in the new season of Twin Peaks, uh, episode eight, my favorite episode of the new season thus far, uses Penderecki's Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima. Like similar composer Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead, Mark Corwin's score injects intense dread into seemingly innocuous scenes. Like One of the reasons why the music is so important in There Will Be Blood is that a lot of stuff going on screen is fairly 
mundane. It's like people traveling across the vast countryside or setting up oil rigs or pondering a business deal. You know, stuff that on its face would be boring, but Johnny Greenwood's just chilling, dread-inducing music elevates those scenes that you're constantly on the edge of your seat. And Mark Corbin's work on certain establishing shots in this movie have a similar effect. Something that may put you off is its absolute dedication to period authenticity. So we're not talking about the depiction of uh, pilgrims of like the big belt buckles on their hats, all dressed in black. They did their research on this movie. They tried to get their hands on as many much period costuming as possible. And the other cool thing is that they wrote the the dialogue in the script in an older dialect that would have been spoken by Puritans in New England at that time. It was still carried over uh, from England from which they just arrived. And it's not quite like at Shakespeare level, but there are a lot of like ifs at the end of words, a lot of thous and thighs. And if you find that takes you out of it, or if you find that you have to listen too hard to understand the dialogue, that's something you can't watch casually, this movie will not be for you. It is very dedicated to trying to authentically portray the period at seven. And I really dig that. If you want something that uses more contemporary vernacular, The Witch may not be for you. So just giving you that heads up. But it is, to me, one of the primary works of new horror cinema. Like You get the sense that Eggers had a very clear idea of what kind of movie he wanted to make, and he executed on it to a T. Just a great cast as well. Uh, as I said before, this is the breakout role for Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, who you've seen in Split. Uh, the father, William, is played by Ralph Innocent. Not a big name. You may remember him as Finch, so the shitty friend of David Brent uh, from the original UK The Office. He was Dagmar Clefjaw in Game of Thrones. He was a Ravager in Guardians of the Galaxy. This very tall, scarecrow-built English man uh, from up north whose voice is like, uh, my friend and uh, horror writer Cameron Suey described it as like wind creaking through an old oak tree. I wish he had voiced Geralt in the English dub of The Witcher 3 because he has like that perfect, archaic, off-putting voice. Uh, the mother is played by Kate Dickey, another Game of Thrones alumni. She was Lysa Aaron, so Catelyn Stark's sister. I hope this is definitely bringing more attention to Anya Taylor-Joy. Horror directors, you know, get your hands on Ralph Innocent. That guy's really good. And he was the standout character in this movie for me. Like, guy who is absolutely a dick and a worse and a worse person as the movie goes on. But Innocent puts his all, all into it. Uh, you can find The Witch uh, streaming on Netflix currently. It's absolutely on Netflix Canada. Not sure about its U.S. counterpart. It's also available to rent on YouTube. So for the video section, I want to talk about Chris Straub's Local 58 series, uh, particular its first entry, Weather Service. So some background, uh, Chris Straub, most famously known as a webcomic writer and artist. Chris Straub, uh, who is responsible for the webcomics Brood Hollow, Chainsaw Suit, Checkerboard Nightmare, Starslip, F Chords, very prolific webcomic artist. He's got a really good eye and ear for horror. He wrote the famous creepypasta Candle Cove, which was uh, turned into a TV miniseries on the TV series 
Channel X, I believe. No, Channel Zero, Channel Zero, yes. Local 58 is his excursion into horror film, albeit of the very short form variety. All these are supposed to be set like on some local cable news, not cable news channel, like a local cable access channel. Uh, this first video is only two minutes and 38 seconds. Um, and it's supposed to be like a weather emergency broadcast uh, service message gone horribly wrong or horribly right, depending on your perspective. Without spoiling too much of this very short video, it's like the perfect amalgamation of weather reports, cosmic horror imagery, and the kind of stuff you'd find late at night on your local TV channel, like on a weekend. You know, just that time when no one was really watching. I don't know, puts you in the shoes of someone who's up late at night, presumably in the 90s, and watching the world, the world end around them. Uh, so I'll leave the link to that in the show notes. You can just search Local 58 Weather Service on YouTube. Another pseudo-blast from the past uh, is the short story Ted's Caving Page. How much of a blast in the past is this story? Well, it's still hosted on an Angel Fire page. So basically the poor man's GeoCities. I guess the poor man's GeoCities, I wasn't hosting websites at that time, only reading them. It dates back to around 2001, and it's the personal journal of this amateur spelunker uh, who he and his friends uh, go deeper and deeper into a nearby cave system. And they bring cameras down, they take some photos. So the person who wrote this was very obviously not a professional writer, kind of clunky, or at least a pro writer's early work. The way it feels authentic you know, it reads like someone who is an amateur spelunker first and a writer second. Going caving is his passion. It's not something he knows how to write particularly well about. But you get the sense that, like, this guy is so overwhelmed by what he found down beneath the earth that he needs to get it out into the world. It does a neat thing with the ending. It's kind of a sudden ending, an ambiguous, unresolved one. And the ending works because it's kind of beholding to the formatting of that website, like how a certain link responds to the click of your mouse. Uh, so without saying anything more, you can check that out. And I've got the link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you again for tuning in. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking about The Witch. I certainly had a lot of fun researching it, so to speak, by getting to rewatch it again. While I didn't uh, read Ted's caving page at all in the last couple of years, I think I'm going to do that before I hit bed tonight. It's been too long. I remember it being very good. And here's hoping it holds up in my mind again. So thank you for tuning in for me this week. And I'll see you next time. This was Outside of a Dream. Outside of a Dream is produced and hosted by Daniel Link. The music you're hearing is Deep Blue by Ben Sound, which you can find at www.bensound.com.